Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in roughly the order of publication. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, In today's episode, I will be looking at an interesting short story on consumerism called Service Call. It's not just about consumerism, though. It's about consumerism and state power and to a degree surveillance These are, especially consumerism is a theme that was really on Dick's mind in the stories he published in 1955. Yeah, some of them were written at various times, you know, as early as 1952 in the case of Nanny. But a lot of them came out in 1955. And a cluster of them deal with this question of of consumption and how it impacts human freedom. So you want to put this story alongside things like uh, Foster Your Dead or Nanny or Captive Market to a degree. Um, yeah, those stories in particular deal with that Autofac, which we'll look at shortly. Also published in 1955. These are stories that deal with with the negative impact of the consumer society. And if you've been following this podcast, you know, I have rather complex views about Dick's views on, on consumerism because I am, in a sense, on the side of consumption over production, if, if, if you had to make a choice, right? Because production involves work and consumption involves leisure and you know, for that for that basic reason, I, I tend to be on the side of of the of the consumer. But, anyways, um, let's let's get into this this story. Service call, originally published in Science Fiction Stories in July of 1955. You can now find it in the fourth volume of the collected stories of Philip K. Dick, the one called Minority Report and other classic stories by by Philip Dick. That's the same volume where you can find Auto Fact. Um, the minority, of course, the Minority Report, the Mold of Yancey, a lot of really classic stories by by Philip Dick, Captive Market, which I just looked at, um, uh, a lot of good ones in that collection. It's, it's one worth having. I don't know if it's the one to buy if you only could buy one, but you know, I do recommend everyone gets who's interested in Philip Dick get the full five volume uh, collection. They're not that expensive. The Citadel versions. Are, are not the most well made, and but and they're not the most pretty, but I think they're, they're affordable anyway. So and they're, and they're worth having. But anyway, so volume four of that you can find it. Dick made some comments about this in a 1976 anthology. Uh, he that came out of his stories. He he wrote some just some little blurb about about. About each each story that appeared there and so we have it reproduced in the collected stories here's what dick said about service call when this story appeared many fans objected to it because of the negative attitude i expressed in it but i was already beginning to suppose in my head the growing domination of machines over man especially the machines we voluntarily surround ourselves with 
which should, by logic, be the most harmless. I never assumed that some huge, clanking monster would strike down Fifth Avenue devouring New York. I always feared that my own TV set, or iron, or toaster would, in the privacy of my apartment, when no one else was around to help me, announce to me that they had taken over. And here was a list of rules I would, was to obey. I never liked the idea of doing what a machine says. I hate having to salute something built in a factory. Do you suppose all those White House tapes came out of the back of the president's head and programmed him to do what, to, what he was to say and do? So that, that, those end questions have to do with, with Nixon, of course. Um, so he expresses pretty straightforwardly here his technophobia, his fear of technology, and particularly his fears of, of household consumer electronics. And, and that's been part of the thing that bothers me about Philip Dick is if, if you're someone who does a lot of work around the house, I don't think you see things like the iron or the washing machine or the toaster as a threat. You know, as someone who, if, if you're someone who has to do a lot of the household work, a lot of the cooking and the cleaning, right? Traditionally in American culture, that was women who had to do that work. You're going to find this stuff is liberating. You find these technologies liberating and it'd be pretty far from your mind that this would be something that could oppress you. Why does Philip Dick come back to this idea that these consumer household electronics are such a big threat when in fact for most of us we see them as a liberating thing? Anyways, that, that's, that's my standard question for, for Dick. Too bad he's not around to, to answer it for me. Anyways, the story. Uh, our main character is David Cortland. He's a research director for a company called Pesco Paints, and he is a studying the effects of the California heat on a new type of treated shingles, and his work is interrupted by a doorbell. So it's a pretty standard middle-class job that this guy has. Not, nothing, nothing too fancy. But his work is interrupted by a doorbell. Cortland steps, stops his work to, to attend to the door. And he finds who he assumes is a salesman at the door. But actually, not a salesman, he claims to be a repairman. And he's sent to service Cortland Swibble. Cortland playfully teases the repairman, telling him he doesn't want his swivel fixed. In fact, he has no idea what a swivel is, but he sort of plays along and just tries to get rid of him. The repairman, though, is deadly serious about his work and insists that the repair orders are for this house and it must be done. Cortland shuts the door and goes back to work. And he wonders what this swivel is. He's never heard of it before, right? He's well-read. You know, he's got a middle-class house, so he's, you know, kind of probably has a lot of these other electronic devices and gizmos around, but he's never heard of a swivel before. He goes back to the door, and he finds the repair order crumpled on the floor. It reveals that the company man... The company the man works for was founded in 1963, which is in the future from when the story set. I presume this story is just set in 1955. And so it's 10 years or eight years in the future. We have this company that's going back to service this robot or this machine, the swivel, whatever it is. Cortland contacts his colleagues and asks them to come with a legal stenographer and a tape recorder. He also contacts his, contacts his boss, Pestbrook, and asks him to come over and tells him about his encounter with the repairman. And he convinces his boss that this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get on the ground running with something that's going to be the next big thing. So they, they set up this equipment in the, in the house. And, you know, it's interesting that Dick mentions the White House tapes 
the Oval Office tapes of Nixon, because here you have Cortland actually kind of setting up a surveillance system in his own room in order to record the conversation with the repairman when he comes back. The plan here is to ask as many questions as they can of the repairman in order to find out what the swivel is and how it works. And if they are going to have this kind of time loop in which this repairman's coming back forward, you know, back in time, they can maybe invent the swivel before any other company does and make big money from it. So all he really knows is that they're widespread and a common feature of households. So they are going to sell whatever the swivels are. Soon the repairman comes back. But, you know, he sees that there's company and says, well, I can come back later. But instead, they convince him to stay and they start to ask him their questions. So they ask these questions. And although the repairman is amazed that this group seems to have no idea what a swivel is, he reluctantly begins to provide answers here and there about what is really here in this 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 device, what the swivel really is. We learn quite a lot about it. We learn that they're biotechnologies. They're not pure machines, that they seem to have bio biological components, that it was developed after the war, after a war in 1961. And there's a much larger war in 1975, which was fought between those who wanted the swivels and those who did not. The winner of that war was the swivel owners. So we know the company that invented the swivel was from 1963, right? So for about 10 years, the swivels really weren't the dominant technology yet. But after 75, there was this war and the swivel owners won that war. The main purpose of the swivel, they learn, is to maintain ideological unity across the population by gradually shifting people's ideological perspectives towards the norm. So that's what it does. That's It's, it's not an entertainment device. It's not a a convenience, not a labor-saving device. It's something that shifts your perspectives gradually towards the norm. Um, now, what is this? I mean, I mean, we could jump to an analysis here and just say this is a television. Now, nowadays, maybe we don't feel this way because we have so many options of tele on television what to watch, right? There's hundreds of channels. And no one really watches just this, no, people don't watch the same stuff anymore. Not, at least not like they used to. But in the 50s, there was only like three channels. Right. And they tended to reinforce a lot of commonplace everyday values. So does the TV have this goal, have this purpose of kind of shifting people's perspectives towards like an acceptable norm? But anyways, in 1975, there was this war between the swivels that rooted out the contra persons. Now, as a result of this war, war became obsolete because everyone has a swivel. Therefore, no one has any contrary points of view. Everyone has a stand, you know, the accepted, normal, you know, agreed upon point of view. They're, everyone's politically correct. Cortland and his colleagues point out a contradiction. That is, if the swivel shift people's ideological perspective and the people who repair the swivels can adjust them, who's really in control? Is it the swivel? Is it the repairman? Is it the one who programs the swivels? And the repairman just explains that all they do is keep the swivels from dying. They treat illnesses because they are biotechs, so they could die. So all they're really doing, they're, they're less repairmen than they're like vets almost. So with this knowledge in hand, they confess that they're from the past, say, well, we don't have a swivel, and they send the repairman on his way. It's not clear to the group how they can profit from this. They 
they sort of talk about maybe finding the inventor of the swivel and killing him because it sounds really horrible. What's what's resulted on that? But during their discussions, a doorbell rings, and at the door is an installation team with a new generation of swivels for Cortland's home. So you kind of have something a bit like Medler in a way, where in the story Medler, changing the future actually affects the past, right? So they they bring from the future these eggs of the moth that eventually do destroy Earth. So they, in that story, they get news that by looking to the future that Earth's going to be destroyed by these giant moths. But where do these moths come from? Well, they go in the future to investigate this, and when they come back, they bring back the moths. So um, it's that's that's kind of what happens here because we wonder where the swivel comes from, and it seems that it's the Cortland home that kind of has the first installation, and it's because of this time time loop. So, um, anyways, that, that's all there is in this story. So, a lot of material is packed into this little story. It's quite rich. Its key innovative idea is that there is an easily identifiable relationship between consumerism and ideological conformity. Right? And that's the point Dick's making here. The conformity of consumerism is not merely material. It's not that we all have TVs and refrigerators. Right? It goes beyond that. It's that... Because we all have refrigerators and washing machines and televisions, in particular in radios, we all start to think alike. Of course, mass-produced items really are, you know, mean we're going to be more likely to look alike. Same makeup, same clothing, smell the same, same kind of deodorant, wear the same kind of haircuts because we follow the fashions. You know, we, we fill our homes with the same kind of furniture. Right. Now it's Ikea. So Service Call points out that the greatest danger of consumerism is that it also makes us all think alike. It's not just that we all sort of look alike and wear the same clothes. It's the result of that is we start to think alike. After some trouble, the major characters learn that the swivel is in fact a device that can use some psychic abilities to move people's thinking towards some norm. And it's not really clear how this works, but it seems to be psychic suggestion. Now, we don't really learn what that ideology is either. It doesn't really matter. Is it right wing? Is it left wing? Is it just kind of a banal centrism? In his role as a salesman, the repairman says, quote, You know the sense of security and satisfaction is being certain that your ideology, ideology is exactly congruent with that of everyone else's in the world. That there's no possibility, no chance whatsoever that you'll go astray, end quote. So it's ultimately about security. And this way we're reminded of the hood maker. In that story, people accept it without questioning the the open surveillance culture because it provided security for them, right? No one has the right to hide. Here, no one has the right to be different. And we get great security out of knowing that. We never have to second guess ourselves. We never have to worry, am I being politically correct? Because we cannot not be politically correct thanks to the swivel constantly correcting and revising our points of view. Now, at a time of ideological conflicts around the world, Dick was presenting mass consumerism as a way to overcome ideological divisions. And maybe he's been right. Did consumerism play a role in muting ideological struggles? Is one of the reasons there wasn't deep ideological conflicts in the United States as there was in, let's say, Europe in the 1940s and 50s? Is that because of the greater reach of consumer society, which tended to create a more homogenous worldview. 
Now look at our conversations in everyday life, right? Or just look, go on YouTube, right? You can find a thousand videos talking about the newest Star Wars movie or the newest DCU movie or whatever. Through this, do we kind of have our language and our values and our critiques reinforced? How often do we hear a critique of a film or a story or a novel given by a critic or someone on YouTube or on TV or a critique of a presidential figure or a politician? And we turn around and just reuse that because it's easy, right? Or we heard, thought it was pithy. We don't necessarily sit down and think through it ourselves. We just accept that, that critique and parrot it off. That's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing to do, right? Because none of us can really be original every moment of the day. But what we have here is kind of this constant reinforcement of, of ideology that kind of puts us all on the same page, roughly. And, and I think consumerism and mass culture and mass media do play a role in doing that. Right? And often our conversations are shaped by a relationship to consumer goods, television programs, prepackaged news, and things like that. Is this worse than the ideological conflicts that plagued so much in the last century? I'm, I'm not sure it is. I, I think this might actually be better. right? Because look at what the cost of those ideological conflicts. Millions of dead in the war between Russia and Germany. Uh, many of them civilians. The ideology that led to the Holocaust. You know, maybe being politically correct, even if it requires a little bit of loss of our autonomy of thought, is not entirely bad. Now, I suppose this answer to this must depend in part on the values we agree upon, the way we achieve this ideological homogeneity, and the ideas that get suppressed in the process of doing that. You know, because the problem, usually we say we don't want ideological conformity because we lose maybe our freedom, maybe we lose our... Now, I, I, I'm not sure how much freedom we may have of thought but setting that aside you know we might be in creating a common ground let's call it not call it ideological conformity let's call it a common ground in doing that we might lose out on some ideas that are valuable right and now it does seem that dick prefers the honest intellectual conflict to an imposed and shallow consumerist unity but you know if you think of the novel like the world Jones made, he critiques the same idea there. Now, in the world Jones made, it's I, I relativism, which is the kind of political correctness that gets imposed on everyone. And that's not ideological conformity, but ideological banality. It's like no one's supposed to have an opinion. And I guess that gets you to the same place, but but whatever. In the world Jones made, cultural unity is not achieved of course, but there's ideological conflicts ended because everyone agrees to basically ignore. They don't don't say opinions, right? Opinions can't be facts or can never be presented as facts. The swivel imposes an agreement by really fine tuning our opinions. Um, and I think this happens anyways to us. And this is one reason we kind of end up in these polarized communities, right? especially in the United States, you have this deeply divided political system and population. Well, they're all kind of having their ideas fine-tuned, but they're calibrated to different ideological centers. Now, something that Dick commonly does in his stories is place characters in extraordinary uh, situations and then have those characters pursue mundane goals from them. 
and he does that more and more starting at this point in his career especially in stories like uh captive market you see that you know someone with this extraordinary ability and the best idea they can have of what to do with it is make money now in this case you know is it just a plot device or is there more to it is is we do see here that Cortland has this amazing thing happen to him he finds a time traveler right and his question is like how can I make money from it right they seem to have this consumer good that's going to sell so maybe we can get on it his response is basically to profit from it. His goal is to figure out how much he can about the swivel in order to build it. He wants to get there before someone else does. They're like the precogs in the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, who have this amazing ability, and they use it to predict the most fashionable future trends. Cortland can't look past profitability. Now, given our ideological underpinnings of our society, if someone were to develop real superpowers, would they become Superman and save the world and do it for the common good, or would they try to profit from it? I wonder if when Dick was done looking at the extraordinary as a possible threat to humanity. And we see examples of that. We see corruptible leaders. We see post-humans who will replace humanity. We have the golden man. We have sociopaths confident in their superiority. You know, especially a lot of his post-human stories do this. But as he kind of finishes with that, he starts to explore the extraordinary as simply another part of the logic of, of this kind of capitalist world we live in. And this might be the true meaning of what Dick has to say when he talked about God coming in the form of advertising or a piece of trash in the gutter. And I think this is from his later work, maybe Ubik, he kind of talks about in long terms, you know, God manifests as a consumer good. Right? It's kind of the same idea here. Right? The extraordinary becomes just a banal part of, of everyday life. And, and that's kind of the depressing thing. So, you know, moving beyond labor-saving technology, you know, this, we've, we've talked about that a lot on this podcast, and, and I'll probably say more about it, but I think your, my idea is clear. But I do think there's something really intriguing here in this idea that, that technology does kind of create ideological homogeneity, or at least what, what we can say like a common ground of ideas and values. And is that good? I mean, there, I think a benefit of that is we're less likely to kill each other, right? We'll have, we'll have a camaraderie and a solidarity with people. We can sit down at a bar and converse about things, even if it's like Game of Thrones. And that, that creates a foundation for, for community. And I think that's a valuable thing. But, you know, I guess we lose our intellectual freedom. But, you know, a thing we can kind of get into and wonder about is to what degree do, do we have intellectual freedom anyways? Is that just a myth we make up, right? Um, actually, our ideas come from the books we read the media we consume, the people around us, our upbringing, and all these things. So how much do we have a free will of thought is something maybe we can discuss. I'm not sure we have that. So anyways, uh, that sort of does it for this story, Service Call. Um, it's a really good one. It's certainly one worth, worth reading. Um, so thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you have any comments about this, if you have any responses to anything I had to say here, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff we could talk more about in the future. So please, if you have those thoughts, please, well, please uh, just post them below or you can write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com.
Um, I hope you're enjoying reading this. I, I enjoy making these podcasts, so I hope you're getting something out of it. Um, and I would love to hear feedback from you. Um, but if not, just come back next time. I'll, I'll be back shortly with another episode looking at another story um, by Philip K. Dick. My tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving